In the book of John, chapter 14 and verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, and if I prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The expectation of the return of Jesus Christ was both a comfort and a conviction in the New Testament church. They lived with heaven in view. Would you say that out loud to those that you're gathered with you or even to yourself if you're a church of one? Would you just say out loud, living with heaven in view? Wow, that's awesome. Thank you for being engaged. And I want to speak to you on that subject for the next few minutes. The New Testament church's hope, their hope in heaven, was not an adopted myth of ancient origins. This hope of heaven was not simply a philosophical construct that they had built to help them deal with the frailties of human life. It was not a fairy tale or the figment of their imaginations in their wild Christian hysteria. The anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ, their confidence that they would spend forever in a place called heaven, was securely anchored in the truth and the certainty of God's holy word. You see, the Old Testament prophets and their prophecies of the coming day of the Lord, filled with doom and terror, these were well rehearsed by the early church. In fact, Jesus himself had repeatedly taught that he would return as a thief in the night, soon and very soon and ready or not. But into that reality, God's indescribable love and God's amazing grace was fully manifested through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now, and now, for these first century Christians, the horror of judgment has been replaced with the hope of heaven. Condemnation has been eradicated and fear has been extinguished. Instead of living frightened by the coming of the Lord and that day of judgment, now these believers lived with expectation and they lived in the comfort of knowing and living with heaven in view. And why not? Why would they not live in this comfort? In some of his final recorded words, just prior to his crucifixion, Jesus said, and John recorded in chapter 14 and verse 1, 
We read it together in the onset of today's message. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, then I will come again. I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The Apostle Paul, who established many of these New Testament churches, who wrote most or much of the New Testament, he built and he uh, affirmed what Jesus had taught. And he wrote and provided further assurance in his letter addressing confusion that the Christians, the Thessalonians, had about those who had died. Into this confusion, Paul wrote, excuse me, and he said in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 15, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet and with the call of trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and we who remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will be with the Lord forever. And Paul said, so encourage each other with these words. And that is exactly what the New Testament Christians did. The eager anticipation of Christ's return. The hope that they would spend forever in a place prepared for them. It was an enduring encouragement in their lives. It was something that emboldened them. It was something that rested, caused them to find rest. And please don't misunderstand me or misunderstand the biblical text today. Life was not a fairy tale for the first century Christians. They were not immune to the suffering of the present. They were not immune from the uncertainty of circumstances. In fact, they lived through the crushing cruelty of demented seizures. They battled sickness and they battled disease. They suffered financial loss. They endured social shaming. They endured the intolerance of a culture that preached tolerance. They watched loved ones get ripped out of homes never to appear again. And yet through it all these New Testament Christians live with heaven constantly in view in the good days and in the bad days. When they thought they had it figured out and when they didn't know what was going to happen next, they simply lived with this comfort that soon and very soon we are going to see the king. They lived with heaven in view. These Christians, 
these first century Christians, they understood that yes, we may be suffering, but it is but for a moment in light of heaven. Even when they were confronted by death, they rested in this comfort that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord through unmitigated hardships. It was the abiding hope of heaven that unleashed in their lives unspeakable joy. It unleashed in their lives unrestrained worship that marked them. It marked their gatherings. It marked their homes that they lived in worship. They lived in an anthem of praise to their king, to their God, to their savior. They lived with heaven in view. Emboldened by this anticipation, these New Testament disciples triumphantly marched through the first century and everywhere they went, they spread the good news of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. They share the good news that there is a hope that is beyond this present world. Fast forward now to the 21st century and in some ways, not a lot has changed. Satan remains the master of deception. He's furiously always seeking to divert our eyes from being heaven, heavenward. Satan desires that you and I would become intoxicated with the immediacy of our present circumstances. Satan wants us to be overwhelmed by the urgency of our hour and of the latest crisis of our hour. But I've come today, I've come to share and to speak to you today and to extend an invitation from the word of God that you would lift up your spiritual gaze and that you would look into the eyes of Jesus and that you would look with an anticipation that some glad morning Jesus is coming back for you and for me. It is this certainty. It is this hope. It is this assurance that we find comfort that everything is going to be all right. Whether we are celebrating a birth or we are mourning a loss, it's going to be all right. Whether we are healthy or whether we are sick and on the brink of death, it's going to be all right. Whether we are enjoying the abundance of prosperity or the lockdown of a pandemic, our hope is not in this world, but our hope is heaven, heavenly. Our hope is that some glad morning he's coming back for you and I. I may not have all the answers. You may not have all the answers. I may, not, I may not know. I do not know what tomorrow holds. But in this I take comfort that we shall see him in the air and that he's coming after you and me and joy is ours to share in this I rejoice that when we all get to heaven what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus we will sing and shout the victory they lived with heaven in view and we can live with heaven in view and nothing can shake that confidence 
and that comfort in our lives. Yet living with heaven in view was more than just a comforting truth to the New Testament church. They lived in hope, but it did not blind them to the reality of the terror and the horror of the Lord when he would return for those who were not in a right relationship with him. They rested in comfort, but they were not blind that for everyone who did not, who was not saved and who did not respond to the gospel, that the soon return of Jesus Christ was not a comfort but it would be a torment. This double-edged reality of Christ's return served as a convicting force that governed their lives. You see, they understood and they took seriously the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Wrapping up the incredible Sermon on the Mount, as we would call it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus made this startling statement. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out devils in your name and we perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Jesus left no room for misunderstanding. Right practices trump uh, empty professions. Lip service of loyalty to Jesus Christ was not sufficient. Doing church without right relationship with God was essentially worthless. And a right relationship with God was impossible without faith that leads to full obedience and complete surrender to the will and the way of God. Jesus startling Warning served as a guardrail of holy conviction for the New Testament church. His return, it was a comfort and it was a hope, but it also was a conviction that made them understand that I must live in a state of readiness, that I must live today as if this is the day that he's going to return. I live in a hope of heaven, but I understand that it's not just about what I say, and it's not just the mechanics of doing church. It's not that I was just born into this. I understand that if I'm not in a right relationship with God, that his return, is going to be a day of horror. And so I choose to allow the conviction of that truth to guide me to always in all things be right with God. This astute awareness, it marks the pages of the letters that the apostles wrote to these Christians. Living with heaven in view was more than a feel-good comfort. It was a do-right conviction. 
Paul wrote to the Colossians in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 1. And here is what Paul said. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Here's what Paul continues to say though. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. What was hope for those in a right relationship with God will be horror for those who are not right with God. Peter builds upon Paul's teaching in his second letter to those early Christians. And here is how Peter wrote, The day of the Lord, it will come unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it Alone on that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we, we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. He has promised a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceable lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Over and over and over, we see that living with heaven in view did more than just comfort their hearts, but it guarded their hearts and it guarded their minds from the devious lies and the devious deception of those advocating. It guarded them. It was a guardrail, a conviction that kept them from falling prey to those advocating that the grace of God was a license to live unsubmitted to the world. Word of God. It kept them from the lies of deception that merely feeling the presence of God or operating in the spiritual gifts was somehow affirmation that they were right with God. But against those mortal dangers, the imminent return of Jesus Christ, it arrested their heart. It arrested their mind from the numbness of carnality and the delusion of self-justification. It's now them out of spiritual apathy and it reoriented their faith 
back to the mission and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was this conviction that relentlessly compelled them to live every day in a manner that pleased God above all else. If that was true for them, and it was that truth of their lives and the example of their lives, so the truth of Christ's return must also be a force of conviction and it must propel us in the 21st century to constantly examine our lives, that you and I would examine our lives by the word of God, or that we are living in a loving relationship with God, that we love God with all of our heart, that we love God with all of our soul, that we're loving God with all of our strength and with all of our mind. It is this conviction that he's coming back for his people that keeps us from being deceived and believing that we can pick and choose what part of the Bible we want to do and what part of the Bible we want to ignore. It is the conviction It is the hope of heaven that keeps us living with our eyes wide open to the reality that the profession of our faith alone is insufficient. You see, simply feeling the presence of God, simply speaking in tongues every fifth Sunday is not an affirmation that you are right with God. Instead, we must live in a constant state of readiness. And readiness means that I am living in full obedience to God's word. Readiness means I am living in full submission to the authorities that he's placed in my life. Readiness means that I am faithfully engaged in his mission to seek and save the lost. Oh, I want to live with that kind of life, that kind of readiness, that kind of expectation. I take comfort that he's coming back. I love to sing the hymns about heaven's jubilee, but it's got to do more than make me feel good. It's got to move me to be right. It's got to move me to do what I know to do. It's got to move me with compassion that it's going to be a day of terror for those who know not God. And so everywhere I go and on every day that I exist, I am an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ because I live with heaven in view. Why? So why does it really matter? Why does all this matter? What is all of this about? You see, you don't want to miss heaven. Heaven It's going to be worth every struggle. Heaven is going to be worth every spiritual battle. Heaven is going to be worth whatever you might label sacrifice on this earth. Heaven is going to be worth everything. See, John's recording and his celebration of all that God has prepared for his people It is not by accident that it fills the final two chapters of Revelation and of the Bible, for it serves as the fitting reprise of God's story of love that is shared throughout the scriptures. This is what John recorded. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, 
God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And then he would write in 22 and verse three, no longer will there be a curse upon anything for the throne of God and of the lamb will be there and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or the sun for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. As the old hymn declared, Oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace. Home, the streets of glory, let me lift my voice, cares all past, home at last, ever to rejoice. It is this conviction that we want to see him that we want to look upon his face. It is that conviction that compels us to do whatever is necessary. It is that conviction that compels us to examine our lives and make sure that we're not drifting from the anchor points of truth as Pastor John's preached a week ago on a Wednesday or a week and a half ago. It is that conviction that we make sure and we are willing even to do a spiritual reset and cleanse our temples so the king of glory can come in. It is that conviction that calls us to live 24-7 in a right relationship with God because I want to see him and I want to look upon his face. The good news, the good news for me and the good news for you today is that no matter how far from God you may feel that you are, no matter how messed up your life may be by your own estimation, no matter how hopeless that you feel, the good news for you and I is that today we can find forgiveness. Today we can find salvation and today we can find a life of purpose and power and peace. Today there is still grace for all of us. Today there is an opportunity for all of us to turn fully to God. In fact, in fact, the scripture is clear that because we yet have grace, that the first step of a right relationship for, to God and with God is repentance. It is turning from our sins and turning our hearts, our lives, our minds, and everything we are back to God. That is 
the first step. That's the good news that no matter where you're at, the good news is no matter how carnal you've been, the good news is no matter what you've justified in your life, the good news is you may be living in rebellion. You may have rejected spiritual authority. You may be walking away from God. You may be blinded by carnality. You may be living in sin. Your life might be a shipwreck, but the good news is there is still grace and you can turn and you can repent. And when you repent, it is a step back towards God. By faith, we must understand though that repentance alone is not enough, but by faith, we must obey the word of God and take on his name in water baptism for the remission of our sins. By faith, we must believe that God will honor his word and we will receive the promise of the Holy Ghost and it will be initially evidenced by speaking in a language that we've never learned. I pray that for you and I pray that for all of us that today it is the hope of heaven that compels us to receive Respond to the gracious invitation of our Lord and Savior who simply says, come unto me. In fact, that is the final appeal of scripture in Revelation 22 and 17. John records this. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty Come and let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Just come, be ready, stay ready, be comforted, live convicted, but come, come, come to the Savior. Come to the Lord of Lords. Come to the King of Kings and it can all start right now. If you're wrestling with sorrow, take hope in the coming of the Lord. If you're wondering how this is all gonna end and you've been battling loneliness and you feel like the walls are crushing in, I pray today you would be comforted that God knows where you're at and he has a reward for you and it's going to be worth it all. If you know with all honesty that you've been excusing behavior that is an against God's word and is against the man that God has placed in your life, then this is the day to turn your life back to God. This is the day to be convicted by his word. This is the day to get it all together. And if you've just been standing around and sitting on the sidelines and let everyone else handling the mission of the kingdom, this is the day to realize that what I look forward with hope is going to be horror to those who are not right with God. And today, you can make up your mind. I'm going to reach somebody. I'm going to reach out to that neighbor. I'm going to teach that Bible study I've been putting off. I've been ignoring that conversation. I've been walking around them at work, but I can't do that anymore because I am moved. I am compelled by a holy conviction that he's coming back. And if he's coming back, I want them to be ready. This is the day to live with heaven in view. This is your opportunity to ensure that every day forward you live with heaven in view. And it starts right now as we pray together. In your homes, wherever you're at, 
whether there's 10 of you or five of you or you're all alone, would you join me in prayer right now? If you have further questions about what I have talked about today, if you want to know more about the right relationship with Jesus Christ and what the Bible has to say, if you want someone who would pray with you right now, you can email us at connect at awpc.org and we will quickly get you connected. Wherever you're at, would you join me right now and would you lift up your voice and would you pray out loud, Lord, today. God, we come before you and we bow in humility before you, God. I thank you for your death, your burial, and your resurrection. I thank you, Lord, that you made clear that you were going to prepare a place for somebody like me. I thank you, Lord, though I haven't figured out much in life, I thank you for the hope that some glad morning we shall see you and meet you in the air. I pray, Lord, today as we process the message of heaven. I pray, Lord, today as we respond to the promise of your soon return. I pray, Lord God, today that we would place our hope in you and in you alone. Oh God, be a comfort to your people today. God, there are those watching and their lives, God, have been struck by catastrophe. I pray that you would be a comfort to them, Lord God. They're struggling with loneliness, God, from the shutdown. But I pray your presence would sweep into that room right now and you would comfort them that some glad morning we shall see Jesus in the air. There are those that are battling sicknesses and diseases, God, and they don't understand why their healing has not yet come. I pray, God, heaven would comfort them this morning. I pray for those that are grieving over lost loved ones. They didn't see it coming, God, and now they're gone. I pray, oh God, for them that you would comfort them, Lord God, with heaven. I pray, Lord, for those who are worried about their jobs. They're not sure what's going to happen to their businesses, God. But I pray, God, that you would comfort them with the hope of heaven. And I pray, God, though, for others, that your word would convict them right now as they bow their head in prayer. I pray that the conviction of heaven would, God, touch their heart. They're struggling with submission. They're trying to live the life their own way. God, they've convinced themselves that because they feel you, that you are God pleased with them. But God, your word, your word, God, I pray draws them back to a place of obedience today. Hallelujah. I pray, Lord God, that those who are living in self-justification, Lord, today, let the hope of heaven draw them back to you. I pray for those that are falling prey to the delusion, Lord God, that they can be their own God, will be drawn back to you today. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name. Let your word comfort, let your word convict, and I pray it upon your people and for your people in Jesus' name. For all who are watching God, God, let your presence minister to them right now, I pray. I encourage you to continue to pray. Would you continue to pray right in your home where you're at? Would you pray with those that are around you? Would you pray even all by yourself if you're alone? And let's lift up our hearts and let's worship God and let's live with heaven in view.